So John chapter 17, this is like that, that pump-up speech. This is the last thing. And if you wondered, what would Jesus end his time with? What do you think? How do you think Jesus would talk before he's about to leave to go to the cross? How would he do it? What would he do? Would he give a speech? Would he give some big, passionate war cry? What would he give before the cross? Well, what we're going to find here is that he prays. And that's really how he ends this time with the disciples. He prays with them. These are the last recorded words before it seems like Jesus goes from the upper room and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray again, but that prayer is a private prayer. That's between him and God. This is the last time of group prayer. Sometimes if you've ever been to a prayer meeting or sometimes you, you might do this with your family and maybe everybody prays or something, this is the last time of group prayer that Jesus has. And we're going to find out some really important things. Like I said, before a battle or before a war, the general or the captain or, or the coach is going to give the most important things. He might summarize some things, but he's going to leave us with the most important things that we have to know before the action really starts. And that's exactly what Jesus does. So if that's what he's doing here, let's check out what Jesus thought was the most important thing for his disciples to know. What's the most important thing? Check it out. John chapter 17, verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoke these words, he finished his speech. Now he's moving on to something else. It says, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he said, so who's he talking to now? He starts off with the word father. He's talking to God here. This is an interesting prayer. And the title of tonight's sermon is the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you know Matthew 6 as the Lord's Prayer. That's not actually the Lord's Prayer. That's the prayer that Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. This is the Lord Jesus Christ's prayer. It's one of the longest prayers we have in the Bible. And it's right here. Check it out. He says, Father, the hour has come. That should sound to you like the beginning of a pre-battle speech. The hour has come. The time has arrived. The game time's here. The battle's here. It's about to get started. The climax of my entire life is about to take place right now. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. The hour has come. And he's referenced that hour before. That hour is the time when Jesus is going to deal with the sins of his people. It's when he's going to deal with the cross. He's already promised that in John chapter 12, that the hour of glorification is coming. And that's what he says right here. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That the son may glorify you. Now he's talking kind of in the third person here. That sounds a little strange, but I want you to remember this is a unique prayer in the Bible because who's praying to who? God is praying to God. The son is communicating with the father. So this is a unique prayer. So we're not going to look at this prayer and say, okay, I'm going to pray exactly like this because Jesus is going to pray a little differently because Jesus is a little bit different than us, right? So that's the beginning here. He says glorify. Now that word glory or glorify, that's a Bible word. If I asked you what that word meant, you, you could probably give me some vague definition, but tonight I want to dive into what that word means, because I think that word right there, glory, or to be glorified, that's at the heart of what Jesus is getting at. He's got two main things that he's going to talk about in this final, last push to the disciples, and one of them is all about his glory. That's the most important thing he leaves them with. And then also, he has some requests that he makes to the Father about the disciples. But it says, the hour has come, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh, over every single person, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Okay, That's now introducing another really important thing that the disciples are supposed to pick up on and we should pick up on. That Jesus' mission on this earth was to give eternal life to who? 
to all that the Father has given to him. Okay? That's another big overarching idea in this prayer that Jesus is going to teach that everyone who's a genuine Christian, everyone who's one of God's people, they're God's people. They are God giving a gift to Jesus. That's a big concept that he's going to unpack later on here. Check out verse 3. He just said he was giving eternal life to people. Now he talks about what eternal life is. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So Jesus is talking about himself in the third person here. Right? Don't, you probably shouldn't do that when you're talking to people like, oh, you know what John said? Right? It's like, don't say that. Just say, you know what I said, right? Because it's, it's a weird thing to say. Jesus is saying something about himself while he's praying here. He's communicating to God, but he's also giving this as something that the disciples should learn from. So he says that this is eternal life, that they know you. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of eternal life. What most people think of, most Christians, what they think of is like life that goes on forever. And that's partially true. But just know, if Jesus gives a definition of what it means to have eternal life, he says it right here, that people would know God. Okay? When does that start for Christians? Think this one through. This is another big concept. When does that start? You knowing God. Does that start when you die? It doesn't start when you die. That starts when you become a Christian. That starts when you get saved. And that's what he's saying. Jesus has come to show God to us, to introduce us to God to give us eternal life. And he defines eternal life as us knowing God and us knowing him. Verse four, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Okay, another thing, right? This is not a prayer that we're praying, right? We're not asking God to do this because think about what Jesus is asking God. First of all, he's saying, I glorified you on this earth. I did what would bring you glory. I said, that's a big concept. We're going to unpack everything that means later, but I want you to keep that in your mind. Jesus said his mission on this earth was to give eternal life and guess what else? To glorify God. And he says, I'm done with that now. I'm doing that right now. And really, this is the biggest thing that he will do to glorify God, what he's about to do. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before. So this is teaching that Jesus had glory, right? Whatever that is, right? Which is a big Bible term, which we're going to define in a minute. He had glory before he came to earth. This is really what it's teaching is Jesus came from God, comes down, leaves glory, and then is going to get it back again. And even more glory, it says right here. Verse number six, now Jesus directs his attention to start praying for the disciples here. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave out of the world. Now think about that. He already mentioned that earlier in verse 2, that the people are given by God to Jesus. It says, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He's just repeating himself. He's saying, remember, these people, remember who's talking? Jesus is talking to the Father. These people, he's talking about the disciples, they are your people. That's what Jesus is saying to the Father. They're your people, and you know how we all can know that they're your people? Because they've kept your word. Verse 7. Now, they know everything that, I've, that you have given me is from you. <laughs> I'll read it again. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. So, another big concept in the Gospel of John. And that's why I'm saying this is like the summary. This is like all the points that John's been making this entire time. Jesus is squeezing into this prayer. That all that authority that Jesus had on earth to forgive sins, 
to heal people from their diseases, to raise them from the dead. The teaching that Jesus gave, all of that wasn't just his invention coming out of his brain. All of that was really God the Father's plan and work for him to do. Verse 8, for I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Okay, repeating that idea again. I just want you to have that hammered home that Jesus is saying in this prayer. Disciples, they are God's people, God's selected, pre-chosen people that are given as a gift to Jesus. Verse 11, or verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Again, this is not a prayer that you can pray to God, that everything that God has belongs to you. That's not true, right? Think about it. What what does God have? God owns everything, and Jesus is saying, everything that I have is yours, and everything that you have is mine. That's just not true with us, is it? That's just not true. Everything that God, God owns every person. God owns everything. God owns the whole world. He owns every planet. You don't own all those things, right? I don't own all those things. This is something that only Jesus can pray in verse 10. Now he shifts his attention. He says, I'm no longer in the world, right? Now he's talking about like future tense. Is he in the world as he speaks this? Yes, but he's about to not be in the world anymore. He's about to go back to the father. Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, the disciples, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's another big concept that Jesus brings up. I want my people to be unified. I want them to be one. And really, we're not going to spend that much time talking about that this week, because next week, we're going to finish this prayer. We're only going to cover about half of it tonight, but the second half of the prayer is all about that, that we'd be united. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept I kept them in your name. Jesus was their protector, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. What he's saying there is all of God's people that he gives to Jesus, guess what? They were with Jesus. Now, Jesus says, I haven't lost any of them except for one, but that even, even that one, that was all a part of God's plan that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus is saying that God, the Father, is sovereign over everyone's salvation. He's the sovereign God over all of that plan. Verse number 13. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I've given them your word and the the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That's something Jesus already said in John chapter 15. Now, Jesus is asking another thing from God. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's what Jesus is ultimately praying for the disciples. I don't want you, the Father, to take the people out of the world because then the world would be at a massive loss. I mean, think about the world if all the disciples that Jesus had left, right? Who's gonna share the gospel with people? That would have been a big problem for the world. But Jesus recognizes, oh no, they they need to be in the world. But keep them, God. Keep them from the power of Satan. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, super important here. Sanctify them. That means to make them holy. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That's a really important verse that we'll get to later. Talking about how God wants to change us or sanctify us with the word of truth, with the Bible, with God's word. 
Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We have a mission in the world. The disciples had a mission. The apostles had a mission. We have a mission. Jesus really sent us into the world. Verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The idea of being consecrated is a word used in the Old Testament to talk about the priests, which is why at the top of your page, if you look at the top of John chapter 17, what do the the people who put this Bible together, what do they call this? They call it the high priestly prayer. The reason for that, I think there's two reasons, because they want to show that Jesus is praying for us, just like a high priest in the Old Testament prayed and interceded for the people of Israel. But I think there's another element to that. Right here in verse 19, where Jesus says, I'm consecrating, same word as sanctifying, I'm sanctifying myself, setting myself apart to do something. Just like the priests did in the Old Testament, they had to consecrate themselves before they could offer sacrifice. Jesus consecrates himself, makes himself ready to be the sacrifice. And that's what all of this is about. That prayer, right, is only really the first half. We'll cover the second half next week. But I want you to see that this prayer is all about two major things. It's about the glory of Jesus. And Jesus is saying that's important for us disciples to know forever that this is all about Jesus, but also that Jesus has some requests that he makes from God for us disciples. So we're going to look at all of those, but I want to go back to those first five verses and talk about this. And I want you to write down the first point before we we get into it. I mentioned a word, the word's glory, okay? This is an important word that we need to understand if we're going to understand anything about this chapter. Point number one is this, think rightly about the glory of Jesus. Think rightly about the glory of Jesus. I want you to write that down. Think rightly about the glory of Jesus because that word is so important here. Jesus is asking God, and it's the repeated theme of this chapter, asking God to glorify him. Now, if I asked you, hey, can you make sure you glorify me? You'd be like, hmm, what, what, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, I'm like, you know, like, like we glorify God, right? Glorify me. You'd be like, what, what do you, what do you, how do, what does that even look like? I don't even know what that looks like. Do you want me to like say nice things about you? Do you want me to like tell other people how great you are? Like, what do you want me to do, right? That's why, well, that's a very, very abstract concept in our minds. I want us to get that a little bit more concrete, what that word glory means, okay? And, and the thing we have to do is you have to look at the Old Testament. That's what we have to do to understand this because the word glory shows up all the time in the Old Testament. I'm gonna give you a couple verses. I want you to write them down. First one is Isaiah chapter six, verse three. Okay, when we're talking about glory and talking about God, we have to understand what this means and the Old Testament has a word that's called glory, okay? Isaiah six, verse three. This is the angels talking about God to Isaiah, including the most important things about God and guess what they say? They say God is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, okay? They call him holy, which means different, set apart. And they say the whole earth is full of his glory. What does glory mean, okay? The Old Testament, that word for glory has a literal meaning, and then it has a range of meaning, okay? It has a literal meaning and a whole set of words that you could use to define it, just like our words do. When you look at a dictionary, there's like a literal meaning, and then there's a whole bunch of ways that you could use that word, okay? The literal meaning of glory is the word weight in the Old Testament, weight. You might say, oh, well, does that mean like whoever, you know, weighs the most has the most glory? Well, um, 
in a sense, yes. Um, and here's the sense that, that that means. Glory, when we talk about weight, if a king, I want you to imagine a king in the Bible times. If he has a bunch of riches and a bunch of gold and a bunch of silver and a big palace, you would say that king has a lot of glory. They've, they've got a lot of, just got a lot of weight. There's a lot of importance surrounding them. Another thing it means in the Old Testament is majesty, which is another word we don't use very much. When we think of majesty, you might think of like, I don't know, the queen, the queen of England, right? Your majesty, right? It's a phrase we use. Majesty means honor. It can mean beauty. It can mean strength. Basically, it's the idea of having a lot of something, a lot of power, a lot of riches, and a lot of importance, okay? What kind of things have glory, right? There's a lot of things that have glory, if we're going to use that word. A lot of things that have importance, right? We think of big concepts, they have importance, right? Sacrifice, if you think of sacrifice as a concept, you say, wow, that has importance because these animals are going to be killed for me. That, that, there's some glory there. What the Old Testament says is God is full of glory. When we think about God, one of the words you need to think of is glory. But the problem is, maybe in the past, maybe you've never thought about that word, you might not even know what that means. If I said, hey, does God have glory? You'd say, yeah, I guess, I guess so. The Bible says it all the time. I don't really know what it means. Right? It means he has importance, power, dignity, strength. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1 is another verse I want you to write down. Psalm 8, 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. We can, we can see just in the world how amazing you are. And that psalm is all about this, that God has glory. He's shown it in his creation. And it's amazing that God even lets us know that. It's amazing that we are even thought of by God. That's what Psalm 8 is all about. But that's how he starts. Another verse I want you to write down about glory in the Old Testament is Isaiah 42, verse 8. Isaiah 42, 8. God's talking here. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no one else. I don't give my glory to anyone else, nor my praise to carved idols. That chapter is all about idols and people worshiping false gods. And God says, I'm the Lord. I have glory and I don't give my glory to anybody else. Now, think about how weird of a thing it is that Jesus asks for God's glory. When you have that verse in mind, Old Testament says God doesn't give his glory to anybody. Now you have Jesus asking the Father to glorify him. That is strange. I just want you to feel that for a second. That's a little bit weird. How can he do that? It's because he's God. Like that's the big thing, that the, the first big thing you should take away from these set of verses is that Jesus is God. That's what that means. That Jesus has glory, that Jesus has all the glory of God. Hebrews 1 says something similar. Hebrews 1, 3 says he's the image of God. He's got all the radiance of the glory of God. He's got all of that. Anything that is amazing about God is also amazing about Jesus. He has all of that. In the New Testament, that word glory means something similar. It means honor. It means splendor or praise. But the literal meaning is a little bit different. The literal meaning is not weight. The literal understanding of that word glory, doxa, is the idea of bright or amazing. Basically, the idea is that if we glory in something or you consider something with glory, you think extremely highly of it. You see how that's really similar to the Old Testament definition, right? If a king has tons of gold in a big palace, you'd say he has a lot of glory, he's important, he's got 
weight to him, right? He doesn't have to be a fat guy to have weight, right? Even if he's a, you know, a little king, like we mentioned before, right? He can have a lot of riches and power, and you still say, wow, he's got glory. He's important, right? Because he's got all this stuff, and he's got all this big reputation, right? Same thing in the New Testament. When we think about the word glory, that word means that you think highly of it. How can Jesus share that glory? Well, because he's God. I want you to look at a passage. I want everybody to turn your Bibles to the left. It's a passage that promises this. That's why we shouldn't be taken by surprise. It's Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. When everybody to turn there, you might think, well, what do the Psalms have to do with Jesus? Well, the Psalms are full of promises about Jesus. And Psalm chapter 2 is a Psalm that's all about how the Father is going to give his glory to somebody. And it's a weird Psalm if you don't know who Jesus is. It's a weird thing. What is he talking about? Psalm chapter 2. It's the big book. It's kind of in the middle of your Bible. Psalm chapter 2. Look at verse 7. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. This psalm, at least starts out, verse, verse 2 talks about there, how there's an anointed one. How God has chosen somebody and he's giving this person power. I think in the initial context, this is talking about a king of Israel. Okay? But the New Testament authors keep pointing back to this and saying, yeah, it, it, it referenced a, a king, but it really was pointing forward to Jesus. Check this out. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. You're recognized before the whole world that today you're my person. You're my son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. In the ends of the earth, your possession. What that means right there, in this context, is not, oh yeah, all these people really like me. That's not what it means. What this is saying is that the glory of Jesus, part of what that means is that Jesus is going to take over the world like a king. He's going to own everything. He's going to have all the nations as his possession. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is getting a little intense. Are you sure this is about Jesus? He's going to come in and destroy people? Yeah. That's what it's talking about. Look at verse 10. This is now, therefore, O kings, now he's not talking to the chosen king. He's talking to other kings, other nations, everybody. He says, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry. Now you might say, whoa, okay. Uh, what, what are we talking about? We got to kiss somebody? All right, this is a little weird. Right? Now think about this. You've got a king that's coming in. You've got a king that's coming in that's going to destroy everything. What should you do? If the king who's going to have the whole world, who's got all this power comes, and he came to your house, and he said, this is my house now, what should you do? What would you do? I hope that if an army of 10,000 people surrounded your little house, you know, and said, this is my house now, I hope you say, yes, it is. Come on in, right? Because you've got no match, right? Unless you just want to have a shootout right in your house. It's like... It's your weapons versus their weapons, right? If they got 10,000 people, I think you're going to lose, right? 10,000 people, a couple of tanks, a few helicopters. You're, you're going to lose, right? Most of you. I mean, some of you got a lot of guns, so I don't know. But like most of you are probably going to lose that battle, right? Probably going to lose. Hopefully you should surrender. And that's exactly what Psalm 2 says. You should surrender to Jesus as the king. You should surrender. Everybody, every nation, every person, every king, you should kiss the son. Show him honor. Lest he be angry. 
and you perish in the way. Here's what happens if you stand on the wrong side of Jesus's kingdom. You'll die. That's the bottom line. It says, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, it sounds really mean. sounds really crazy. How can this be talking about Jesus? Look at the last line there. Look at the last line. That's the line where we find hope. That's the line where the disciples of Jesus live right here. Blessed are all, not just some, but all, all those who take refuge in him, who are safe in him, who have a right relationship with him. Blessed are you. Happy are you. You'll only be good if you're in him. That's the glory that we're talking about here. And that's the person who speaks to us in John chapter 17. He's this guy. He's the king of the world who's going to come and take over every kingdom and every nation and who will rule the world forever. The king of the universe. That is Jesus. Now, you might say, what does that have to do with glory? That has everything to do with glory. Do you see how glorious Jesus is? See how important and weighty and strong and powerful and mighty he is? Do you see the respect and honor and praise we should give to him? That's exactly what his glory is all about. So when he asks the father, glorify me, what he is asking for is for everyone to recognize that he is the good, powerful, strong, mighty, awesome king. That's what he's asking. That's what he's talking about. And how does that happen? What is God going to do to glorify him? This might sound strange, but God is going to put him to death. That is how he will receive that maximum glory. And be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. That, you just got me confused there. I thought we were talking about him being like the king and the ruler. How is he going to be glorified in the death? Well, think about what Jesus did when he died. What did he do? Revelation chapter 5 is a worship set in heaven. It's a worship song that goes on. And here's what Jesus is going to be glorified forever for doing. Right here. Revelation 5, 9. Because they sang a new song saying, worthy are you. Talking to Jesus to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. What's the thing that's going to bring Jesus the most glory of anything in the universe? The fact that he died, that he was slain, and that by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What is going to bring Jesus the most glory? The fact and the act and the process of him dying for his people. That will bring Jesus the most glory, and that's what's about to happen. You see how that's really, really important. If we understand who Jesus is and the glory of Jesus, and then we understand what he's about to do, then we understand that we are supposed to glorify Jesus because of his, his death, because of what it did for us. Think rightly about the glory of Jesus. That's something we don't think about all the time, but I want you to think about. We're going to look at that in small groups and think about what it means for Jesus to have that glory, but I want us to Move on, back to John chapter 17. Let's turn back there. John 17, verse 6, he starts praying for the disciples. Now, it feels like, okay, first half of this prayer, all about Jesus and all about his glory. That's super important for us to remember forever. Now, what does he ask God for, for the disciples? He says, hold them. He says, God, keep them. Keep them as your people. Hold on to them. Verse 6 says, that Jesus showed himself, he manifests himself to these people. What people is he talking about here? He's repeated it over and over again. These are God's people that God has pre-selected to bring to Jesus. And what 
Jesus is saying to God is, while I'm gone, while I'm absent from the earth, which is right now, Jesus is absent, his bodily presence is absent from the earth. What does Jesus ask God the Father to do to his people now? Keep them. Hold them. Hold these disciples. Keep them in you. Why? Because they are God's people. I want you to think about that for a second. Does that say that every Christian is one of God's people that God has a special interest in this world in? Yes, that's exactly what this is saying. That if you're a Christian, if you're someone who's believed in Jesus and kept his word, so to speak, it's a helpful way of saying repentance. If you're one of those people, you know what that means? That means God has selected you, God has chosen you, God has saved you, and God will never let you go, ever. That's what that means. Verse 11 talks about that too. Check out verse 11. It said, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, these people, and I'm coming to you. He's talking to the Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. That's a huge takeaway that we should have. If we are gonna be motivated and pumped up to live for Jesus while Jesus is gone, you know what's really important for us to remember? That we're God's people and God will keep us. It'd be really scary to live the Christian life always being afraid that we don't belong to God. Always being afraid that maybe we'll do something to ruin our relationship with God. That would be frightening. That would be terrifying. But Jesus wants these disciples to know, if you are a saved person, if you're forgiven, if you believe in me, you're one of my people, and ultimately you're one of God's people, and he will hold you. Point number two, be confident that God will hold you forever. Be confident that God will hold you forever, and this really is not a promise to everyone. This is a promise to Christians. This is a promise to the people who believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you can be confident that God will hold you forever. Why? Because you are one of God's chosen people. Before I got married, I lived in, I lived in two different apartments. One was with two other guys from church. One was for, with one guy from church. Lived in these two different apartments. Um, there was something I never got in those apartments. Never got an alarm system. I don't know if that sounds risky to you. Maybe you don't have an alarm system. Maybe you do. I never had an alarm system. You know why? I was never afraid for Joseph when I was gone. If an intruder came, I was never afraid for Joseph because Joseph would just beat him up. I don't know. Um, I was just never afraid. Got a big, strong, 220-pound, burly guy. Yeah, you can take anybody. It's almost like he was my alarm system. I don't know. Um, I wasn't his alarm system, so I just, I, I, don't, I wasn't afraid, right? Because it's like, well, he'll, he'll be fine. He'll take care of himself. Um, when I got married, that kind of changed. Um, no offense, but Alexander's a little tiny bit more vulnerable than Joseph, if there was an intruder. Just a tiny bit. I, well, a little bit. So it's right for me, like, oh, well, that makes sense. You should, like, take care of her, right? You, maybe you should be the alarm system. And when I'm there, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, what about when I'm not there? Because sometimes I'm traveling, sometimes I'm gone, right? I want her to be taken care of while I'm gone, right? So what am I going to do? I'm going to set something up. And you, I know alarm systems don't really, like, save you or anything. It's not super helpful. But think about it. I got very limited power to help her, like, when I'm gone. Jesus says to the Father, when I leave, take care of these people. And how much power does God have to take care of people? All the power in the universe. All the power in the universe. You might say, what, does this mean that like Christians will never have problems? Do they never have sicknesses or, or death or disease? That's not what it's saying at all. He says, keep them. He doesn't say keep them alive. He says, keep them. 
What does that mean? You keep them in relationship. No person who truly trusts in Jesus Christ and truly believes in him and truly repents of their sin and is truly saved by God, none of them ever will lose that relationship with God, ever. It's impossible because God holds them. And that's what Jesus says right here. Because if you think about it, what he's saying is, Jesus is saying this about you, if you're a Christian, you are God's gift to him. You are a gift that God has given to Jesus. Now, if you are a gift that God has given to Jesus, do you think he cares about that? Do you think he cares about you? Yeah, he does. Because you are God's gift to Jesus. Now, I think that's a little bit weird. Like, sounds like you're talking about like teddy bears, right? Um, Like people are God's gift? Yes. What does that mean? Does that mean God owns me and is in control of me? Yes. Does that mean I get to decide what I'll do whatever I want to do in my life? Well, if you're one of God's people, God gets to decide that. God's in control. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40, that's an important section to write down. John 6, 37 to 40, says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Talking about people. Think about that. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. So you're saying everyone who truly repents of their sin was chosen by God before and given by God to me? Yes. That's what Jesus is teaching. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So you're saying all the people that God chooses, you're saying all of them come to Jesus in repentance and faith? Yes. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching. Jesus said, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So if you believe in Jesus and trust in him with your whole heart, what does that mean? Does that mean you're totally secure, completely secure in God's love? Completely, like, even if you were to die, he would raise you up on the last day and you'd be his person forever. Is that what it means? It's exactly what it means. It's exactly what it means. So if you're a, one of these people who's believing in Jesus, what does that mean about you? What does that say about me? It says that God cares for me completely. That Jesus died, died to save me from my sins. That's what it means. In all of this, in the context of, of that first point, that Jesus has all that glory? and all that power, and he would do that for you, and he'd do that for me, the king of the universe, the king of kings, the one who's all the, the weight, glory, power, brilliance of the whole universe, he would die for you? He would give his life for me? It's exactly what Jesus is saying. That right there is why a lot of people don't believe the gospel, because it sounds too good to be true. It sounds too good to be true, but it's exactly the truth. Salvation, your salvation, if you're a saved person, is God's plan. It says, even the ones who follow me for a little while and turn away, verse 12, even Judas, even he and his lack of salvation was a part of God's plan. That was all a part of the plan to see Jesus get the most glory. It was to fulfill scripture. It's interesting that he says that in verse 12. He says, this was to fulfill scripture. And guess what he does in verse 13? He starts talking about scripture and you. He starts talking about the disciple and scripture and how you relate to the Bible. That's what he starts to do in verse 13. He says, he's coming to the world so that we would have joy fulfilled. Like, what does that mean? 
Verse 14, I've given them your word in a world that doesn't like you. And that's what he goes on to say. He says, my people, who are my people, my people, chosen by God, they're living in a world now that doesn't like them very much. We've already talked about that a lot in this section of scripture. But here's what I want you to think. What he says next is if you're one of God's people who's held forever, you know what you need to do while you live in a world that doesn't like you? What should your aim in life be? What should your focus in this world be? He says it over and over again. Sanctify them, sanctify them. Be more holy. And what does he use to make us more holy? What does God use to make you, if you're a Christian, what does he make you more holy? What does he use? He uses the word. That's the thing he keeps repeating there. Point number three, write this down. Aim to be transformed by God's word. Aim to be transformed by God's word. Like when we we turn to the Bible, what, what do you try to get out of it? What do you try to do? If this is like that speech, this is that speech in the locker room before the big game. This is that speech on the battlefield before the last battle. Jesus says, be sanctified in the word. Be in the word. What does he want us to do? Between his leaving and his second coming, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be in the word. Now, what do you do? That's a helpful question. If you're a Christian, how do you treat God's word? What do you think of it? What kind of time do you spend in it? Is your thinking shaped by it? How much do you want to be in God's word? I think that's a helpful question too. 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about that. That's a helpful passage to write down too. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. Peter says to the Christians who are listening to him, he says, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Put away your sin. Repent of these sins. Then he says, like newborn infants, like babies, you know what you should do? You should long, you should crave, you should desire for pure spiritual milk. What is that? That you might grow up into salvation. That's the word of God right there. How much do you crave God's word? How much does an appetite for God's word relate to your relationship with God? I think it says a lot about your relationship with God, how much you want to hear from him. I think it makes sense if you're an enemy of God. I think it makes sense if you don't want to be in his word. I think that makes perfect sense. What doesn't make sense to me is if you're one of God's people and you don't want to be in his word. That doesn't make much sense to me. It wouldn't make sense to me if, if a young newborn baby didn't want milk. That wouldn't make sense to me. What makes a lot of sense is if, if this baby wants this milk to survive. Yeah, because it's their only food. Like, it's how they live. It's how they survive. They crave it. They want it. They cry if they don't get it. it makes perfect sense. I want you to turn to one more passage in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms again. Psalm chapter 19. I think some of us may have forgotten the gift that the Bible is to us. And maybe this will help correct our thinking. Psalm chapter 19, verse 7. I think if we think about the reason why we don't love the Bible the way we should, probably comes down to our thinking, or lack of thinking, our idea that it's not really, it's not really better for me to be in this. It's better for me to spend my time somewhere else. It's more profitable. It's better for me to spend my time working on some, some project. It's, it's better for me to sleep a little bit longer than to be in God's word. It's better for me. We think like that. We, we operate based on our desires, our wants. I want to do this more than that, so I do it, right? I want to sleep more than I want to read the Bible, so I don't read the Bible, I sleep in. 
That's the way we operate. That's the way we make decisions all the time, okay? So if you want this thing more than you want anything else, guess what you're going to do? You're going to get in it, okay? I want to increase your desire for God's word right here. Psalm chapter 19, verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is pretty good. It's pretty good. It's, um, it's decent. It's like uh, 75% helpful, but not, not numbers in Leviticus because I didn't understand what was going on there. I just pulled the pastor mic on you. That's not what it says, right? That's not what it says. What does it say? The law of the Lord is perfect. Perfect. What does it do? When, when you read the, the law, which by the way, what's the law? What is, he ref- what is, what is David referring to here? And so, what is the law? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law. What are we reading in our daily Bible reading right now? The law. We're reading Numbers. We're reading the law. The law of the Lord is perfect. Absolutely perfect. What does it do when we read the Bible? Revives the soul. What does it mean to revive? It means to give life. Your relationship with God, it's going to be pretty dead without being in God's word, isn't it? Love the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It's positive, okay? Um, have you ever tried to, maybe you're just getting into this, but try to follow like the news and like what people say is going on in the world? Like, have you ever tried to do that? Or like maybe you'll read a book and then another book and they disagree or you talk about sports. Some of you guys, you listen to this guy on ESPN, and you listen to this guy on Fox Sports, and, and guess what they're always doing? They're always disagreeing. And it's like, what's the truth? I don't, I don't know what the truth is, right? In whatever arena we look at in the world, it's all unsure. But this says, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, what God says is sure. It's perfect. It is correct every single time. It's truth. And it makes wise the simple. The simple means people who, who don't know, okay? If your thinking is shaped by the Bible, guess what that makes you? That makes you no longer simple. It makes you wise. If your thinking and your decisions are being shaped by the Bible, that makes you wise. Verse eight, the precepts of the Lord are right. So everything we read in the Bible, every rule, a precept is like a rule, right? All the rules that God has, they're right. All of them are right. And what do they do? They rejoice the heart, okay? When you read rules, does that usually make you happy? Right? Usually when you read a list of rules, you think, oh, I can't do that? Oh, I really wanted, I was uh, tasked today in our staff, we're, we're having this big uh, ping pong tournament, okay? Um, sounds really weird. I don't know who's, I think it was Pastor Lucas's idea. He wanted to do this ping pong tournament. And for like 10 minutes today in our pastor's meeting this morning, we talked about the ping pong tournament. We couldn't decide the rules. And then, because um, I kept saying, no, we should do this. No, we should do this. And they're like, fine, you make the rules. So I literally spent like 20 minutes today writing up a bunch of rules, okay, for ping pong. Um, we, it, I had to write out rules for ping pong, okay? Um, I hope... <laughs> Sounds interesting connection. I hope the staff rejoices because of my rules, okay? You know why? You know what rules are? Rules are boundaries, okay? They're boundaries. They're like a fence. They're like things that, that, that keep us in. And a lot of people in our, our thinking is, well, I don't like any boundaries. I don't want to be kept in, right? Well, fences do two things. They keep in, but they also keep out, okay? You, you don't like fences? Well, you like doors, don't you? You like doors that close, 
There's like walls on your house, right? And that's the idea. The precepts, the rules of God, guess what they do? They keep us in, they keep us safe. They give us space to play, which is, by the way, why I made those rules, because a bunch of people on staff, they're cheaters when it comes to ping pong, okay? They're cheaters. I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to say it, okay? You know what they do with the ping pong? They, they, they take the ball, and they smack it into the paddle, okay? That's illegal. That's an illegal surf. You have to present the ball, you have to throw it up, and you have to hit it. I'm not kidding. That's the rules. Look it up, okay? That's the rules. Guess what? When people break the rules, I don't have as much fun, okay? I just don't have as much fun, Okay? But when we're all keeping the rules, guess what that gives us room for? It gives us room to have common ground. And guess what? It gives us room to have fun. It gives us room to have a good time. The precepts of God are not a burden. The rules of God, when we read uh, even the Ten Commandments, right? That shouldn't be a, a big burden to us. Although it shows us that we fall short. It shows us that we can't keep them perfectly. But you know what? If we're honoring our father and mother, guess what happens? Well, things will go well for you in the land that you're about to inhabit, right? So the laws of God are, are good they rejoice the heart. I mean, is that what you think when you open the Bible? Like, oh, another rule, another thing I, it's keeping me in, right? The rules are good for us. The commandments of the Lord, that's even stronger when it comes to rules. The commandments of the Lord are pure. What do they do for us? They enlighten our eyes. They show us what the truth is. Verse eight, or verse nine. The fear of the Lord. When we read the Bible and we start to fear who God is, when we think of Psalm two, that Jesus is gonna come with a rod of iron, and be the ruler of the whole world. That fear of the Lord, that's clean. That's good for us. And it endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and they're righteous altogether. Now, verse 10. I wonder if this describes our experience reading the Bible. More to be desired are they than gold. It's better than going on social media. It's better. It's better right here. It says it. It's better than gold. Gold is better than Instagram. Then Bible is better than, yeah, there it is, right? It's better than gold. It's better than whatever you could replace it with. The Bible's better. Even much fine gold, even something that's awesome. It's sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. It's better than breakfast. Better than breakfast. Some of you are like, yeah, I don't like breakfast. Okay, well then pick a meal you like. It's better than eating lunch. Reading your Bible is better than eating lunch, okay? Now, I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not preaching intermittent fasting right now. It's not, don't take that the wrong way. It'd be great for you to have breakfast and the Bible but have them both, right? Don't, yeah, you can have them together if you want to. That's, that's cool. They're sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned or warned by God's word. And in keeping them, there's great reward. That's why the Bible is good. You know, if you would just be a person, it sound, sounds like an old man talking, but if you would just be a person who would listen to Jesus and believe in him, and to live your life the way that he says, and to give your life out as a service to God, you know you would be like the happiest person on the planet. It's, be it's better than whatever you think that you want to do. It's just better. Ask anybody who's really a Christian. Ask, any ask your leader, is it really better? Really? Because maybe you're old, maybe you've tried some of the things I want to try. No, this is better. Doing what God says, doing life God's way. It's just better. It's sweeter than honey. It's better than gold. Because I think the problem is, for some of us, when we look at the Bible, we look at it like wearing our rubber bands. Do you wear rubber bands? Do you have braces? Do you, have you had braces? Or are you like still pre-braces people? Rubber bands, they're these little torture devices invented by dentists <laughs> that you 
put around, like out here and down here, and you put it around there, and it's intended to torture you. It was created by some foreign warlords who wanted to mess with our teeth. No. Um, <laughs> just terrible. It's awful, okay? And like, you should wear your rubber bands because you know what they say, oh, if you wear your rubber bands, then your teeth will move faster and it'll all take place and you get your braces off. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, here's the problem though. I hate my rubber bands. They hurt, okay? It, does, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. It's, I don't want to do it. It's like how I feel with my retainer these days. Like, oh, I don't want to wear it. I'm always like, you're going to wear your retainer tonight. I'm like, uh, I don't know about that. Um, and sometimes I don't. Uh, <laughs> this is, guys, it's not about me, okay? This is about your rubber bands. Not, I don't have rubber bands anymore. You're saying you're going to have to get them again if you don't wear your retainer. Um, but some of us think of the Bible like putting on our rubber bands. Maybe it's something your parents force you to do. Because, oh, I guess it's the right thing. And you know it's the right thing, but it's not, it's not good. It doesn't feel good to you. It doesn't seem like, oh, it's exactly what I want to do. I want to put on my rubber bands, yee, right? Some of us don't think about that. And some of us think like that when it comes to the Bible. We think, yeah, it's something we don't even want to do. The, the difference, though, is looking at Psalm 19, right? Does that describe how we should look at the Bible? Like rubber bands that are going to torture our teeth? No. This is all about how good the Bible is. We need to think of the Bible as good because the Bible is the truth. It's the truth that God gives, and it's the truth that God wants to use to change us and to make us more holy. So we're going to jump into small groups, and we're going to look at the Bible. We're going to turn to a lot of these passages. So I want to give you enough time, but let's pray. Let's ask God to do these things that Jesus already prayed about many years ago. Let's pray.